Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can call you Father, having trusted in your Son as our Savior. And we are thankful that we can come before your throne of grace and to confess our sins privately to you. We know that your word is very clear, that it says that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know that uh, if we are unfaithful, that you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself, and your word is true. And so when we confess, you are faithful, you always do the same thing. And you are just, because Christ has borne that sin upon the cross, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we know at that moment that we are back into fellowship with you. Father, we pray this evening as we continue our study in soteriology that uh, tonight's fellowship will be honoring to you and edifying to us. Father, we promise to give you all the glory in this. We praise you and we thank you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to be switching over here. In progress. I'm going to be switching over here to uh, uh, my screen so you can see what I see. And uh, that way we can get together on the notes here. All right, so last week's uh, Bible lesson, we had talked about imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. And that was a, a very good uh, doctrine to study. And uh, tonight's Bible lesson on justification will pick up on that particular doctrine. We are about 35 lessons into our study on soteriology, and we are currently looking at biblical terminology related to soteriology. And so what I've been doing in this series of lessons that we've been covering for the past few weeks is looking at certain words in the Bible that help us to understand uh, the subject of soteriology. Now remember that soteriology is the study of salvation. It derives from two Greek words, soter, which means savior, and logos, which means the study of or a word about something. And so we are studying soteriology, and we are looking at certain biblical words uh, that have tremendous theological significance to soteriology. So in tonight's lesson, we're going to talk about justification. Justification. Now, at the moment of faith in Christ, and this is what we talked about last week, God's righteousness is gifted to the believer. It is gifted to the believer. Uh, and so in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, he says, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, notice he says, those who receive. And the word receive here translates our Greek verb lombano, which means to take or to receive, to have. And so at the moment of faith in Christ, we receive something. We receive the abundance of grace. And notice what we receive here. He says, and of the gift of righteousness. The gift of righteousness. Now, a gift is something that comes to us free. A gift by its very nature is free to the receiver, uh, to the recipient. Now, the one who gives it, it, it can be very costly when we think of our salvation. It was very costly to God. Uh, with regard to the work of Christ upon the cross, uh, but it is nonetheless a reflection of God's grace, what he gives to us. And so we receive, at the moment of faith in Christ, we receive the gift of righteousness. And this is God's righteousness. This is God's righteousness. This is not our righteousness. This is his righteousness. And it is given to us freely as a gift. 
Now, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a very helpful verse because it says, He made him, that is, God made Christ, who knew no sin. Now, remember that nearly 2,000 years ago, at a point in time, God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, came into this world and took upon himself humanity. In theology, we call this the doctrine of the hypostatic union. The doctrine of the hypostatic union teaches that Jesus is a simultaneously undiminished deity combined together forever with perfect humanity. He is the God-man, the theanthropic person. And this came about at the time of the virgin conception. Uh, Isaiah 7.14 prophesied that a virgin uh, that would conceive and give birth uh, to the one who would be the Messiah. Now, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38 are passages, passage we looked at before, where God the Holy Spirit supernaturally uh, brought about the, doctor, the hypostatic union in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And this because um, the sin nature uh, is passed on through procreation from the Father to the child. And remember that Jesus what did not have a biological father. Now, Joseph was his legal father, but was not his biological father. And so Jesus was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And this is called parthenogenesis. Parthenogenesis, virgin conceived and, of course, virgin born. And Mary was, at that moment, Christotokos. She was the bearer of the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, she was Christotokos. Now, the Catholic Church calls her Theotokos, the bearer of God, the mother of God. That's wrong. God doesn't have a mother. And so Mary was not Theotokos. She was Christotokos. She was the bearer of the humanity of Christ. But when Jesus came into this world, Jesus came into this world free from any contaminants of sin. He did not have a sin nature. Jesus did not have a sin nature, and Adam's original sin was not imputed to him, because again, he was without biological, uh, without a biological father, and this is why the uh, virgin conception was so important uh, theologically to bring about the perfect humanity of Christ, because Christ was born perfect, minus sin, as Adam was created. Now the issue would be, would Jesus go his entire life? Uh, and commit no sin. And we know that he committed no sin. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him, notice, who knew no sin. Now Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. And 1 Peter 2.22 and 1 John 3.5 make it very clear that he knew no sin. So Jesus knew no sin, he committed no sin, and in him there was no sin. So he went his entire life and committed no sin. Then he went to the cross and he died in our place, a penal substitutionary death. Uh, He died in our place. And we looked at several Greek prepositions. We looked at two, as a matter of fact, uh, prepositions of substitution. One is the Greek preposition anti, anti, A-N-T-I. And we see that like in Mark 10.45, where uh, Jesus said that the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And the word for there translates the Greek preposition on T, and that is the preposition of substitution. We also looked at the Greek preposition huper, 
Huper, H-U-P-E-R. And in Romans 5.8, it says that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Huper, he died as a substitute for us. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ also died for sins once for all. The just, Huper, for the unjust. That is, he died as our substitute. He died in our place. Peter goes on, he says, so that, purpose clause, so that he might bring us to God, because we cannot bring ourselves to God. You see, we can produce sin, but we cannot deal with sin. Our good works never, never measure up to the perfect righteousness of God. Now, if we are going to spend eternity with God, we must possess his righteousness. Now, the problem is, is we can never manufacture it. But here's the good news. God offers us his righteousness freely as a gift. He offers us his righteousness freely as a gift. And so again, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin, notice, to be sin on our behalf. That is, all of our sin, when Christ was upon the cross, when he hung between heaven and earth. Recording in progress. And remember that he went there voluntarily. He went there voluntarily because uh, John 10.18, Jesus said, No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. And so Jesus went to the cross voluntarily. And uh, when he hung between heaven and earth, uh, from noon to three, when the sky grew dark, God took all the sins of humanity and placed them on Christ. And so all of our sin was placed on Christ, and there he was judged in our place, the just for the unjust. Uh, And so it says here that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that... And here we have a purpose clause, so that we might become, notice, the righteousness of God in him. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so what this means is that we receive the very righteousness of God that is then credited to our account. Philippians 3.9, Paul says that I may be found in him, that is in Christ. Notice, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that... That what? That righteousness, which, co- which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God, notice the source, it's a top-down truth here. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so at the moment of faith in Christ, God gives us many things. Part of that is subtraction. We receive the forgiveness of sins. Acts 10.43 makes that very clear. We looked at the Greek verb lambano there. Where at the moment of faith in Christ, we receive, at that moment, forgiveness of sins. But we also, uh, salvation is not merely subtraction. It's not merely the subtraction of sins. It is addition. It is the addition of several things. Uh, It is the addition of eternal life, Jesus says in, in John 10, 28, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. I give, didomi, the Greek verb there is a present active indicative. Present tense means it is a right now truth. Eternal life is what we have at the moment of faith in Christ. Now it finds its fullest expression when we leave this world and enter into the eternal state, but it is nonetheless a right now truth. Uh, The active voice means the subject produces the action of the verb. Jesus Christ says, I give. He is the one who gives uh, this thing called eternal life. It's his life. It's God's life. And the indicative mood is declarative for a statement of fact. 
And it is a fact that we receive eternal life at the moment of faith in Christ. It's not a feeling. It's not an experience. I like my feelings. I like my experiences. Uh, But they do not define reality. God's Word defines reality. And so at the moment of faith in Christ, I have eternal life. And I also receive the gift of righteousness. And I am transferred from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son, Colossians 1.13. John 1.12 and Galatians 3.26 says that I become a child of God. A child of God. Think of that. Uh, That's an amazing thing, that we are transferred out of Satan's domain of darkness uh, into the kingdom of the beloved Son, and we become brothers and sisters to the King of kings and Lord of lords. We are brought into the royal family of God. And the issue for us then in phase two of our Christian life, of our sanctification, is our sanctification in which we advance to spiritual maturity, in which we learn the word of God and we live the word of God by faith. Uh, And as we advance to spiritual maturity, we then begin to live. Our performance becomes eventually over time equal to our position in Christ. We are children of God. We are brothers and sisters to the King of kings and Lord of lords. We are part of the royal family. We need to act like it. And that's where our performance needs to be that of our position. Well, that happens over time as we learn the word and live the word. But... Uh, From the day that we trust in Christ, we receive the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so at the moment of faith in Christ, God's righteousness is gifted to the believer. And he is at once made right with God and declared just in his sight. Now I mentioned before that uh, when you think about God's attributes, two of them work very closely together. That's God's attribute of righteousness and justice. And as I mentioned before, I did my doctoral dissertation on the subject of God's righteousness. I wanted to do it on all of his attributes, but I was told that that was too broad of a subject. I had to narrow it down. So I picked the attribute of righteousness. Now, I had to present all the attributes to show how they work together uh, uh, in connection with each other. But the attributes of righteousness and justice work very, very closely in tandem with each other, in fact. And so uh, we understand that what the righteousness of God demands, uh, the justice of God executes. And so uh, the righteousness of God refers to the standard uh, of righteousness, which is his very character and is also revealed in his word. Uh, But what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. So what the righteousness of God approves of, the justice of God blesses. And what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. And so you see how the justice refers to the actions that God takes as a judge, as a righteous judge, predicated on his attribute of righteousness. And so the righteousness of God approves of the righteousness of God. So when God takes his righteousness and gives it to us freely as a gift, we at that moment possess his righteousness. And so at that moment, we are declared justified in God's sight because of the righteousness that God gives to us, the gift of righteousness. But if we try to operate, if we reject that, if we reject God's gift of righteousness and try to operate on our own righteousness, well, the righteousness of God does not approve of human righteousness. In fact, Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag. And we talked about how the word filthy rag there, ida in the Hebrew, literally means a menstrual rag. 
Uh, and that's offensive, and that's, it's supposed to be offensive, by the way, that if we were to take all of our good deeds, all of our good production in life, put it into a bag and bring it to God and demand the trade-in value, it would be worth one menstrual rag. It would be worth something that God says, I'm sorry, I can't accept that. And so it does not measure up to the perfect righteousness of God. And so at that moment, if we are relying upon human works, then we will be judged. Well, that person, we won't because we've trusted in Christ, but the person who rejects uh, Jesus as Savior is left to trust in their own good works. And these will be judged according to their deeds at the great white throne judgment when the books are opened, and they will be found wanting. Uh, and so they will be judged, each of them according to their deeds, and the end result is that they will be cast alive, thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, so going back to the notes here, divine justification is not by human works at all. It is not. Romans 3.10 says that there is none righteous, no, not even one. There are none righteous. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The divine estimation, excuse me, of humanity is set forth in the Word is not flattering. Uh, the Bible does not present a flattering view of humanity. Now, we still bear the image of God, uh, and in that sense, we have value as human beings. We are not like the evolutionists would have us to believe, that we are just simply the accidental collection of molecules, evolving uh, bags of protoplasm, uh, that we just sort of percolated up from the goo to the zoo to you, uh, to borrow a phrase from Geisler. Uh, and so that's how they would have us to understand ourselves. But that's incorrect. You see, man is made in the image of God, but we are all contaminated by sin, and we all manufacture sin, and so all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so man, by man's efforts, can never win the approval of God. And religion is, is evil. It's pure evil, uh, because religion is really man, by man's efforts, trying to win the approval of God. But that's impossible. That can't be done. The Bible says that cannot be done. Rather, Paul reveals in Romans 3.24 that we are justified, notice, as a gift, dureon. We are justified as a gift by his grace. We do not earn it. We do not deserve it. Grace, kodos in the Greek, unmerited favor, undeserved kindness. Uh, and this has to do with the goodness and the bounty and the open-handedness of the giver and is in no way predicated upon the beauty or the worth of the object. In fact, we were not, are not, and will not ever be uh, uh, righteous in God's sight. There's nothing beautiful or attractive in us. We are sinners in Adam, sinners by nature, and sinners by choice. And so uh, we are justified, not by works. We are justified as a gift. And this by his grace, by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now the word redemption here translates the Greek noun apolotrosis, apolotrosis. And uh, apolotrosis, I was looking at this word earlier, and uh, apolotrosis, and I have a definition here from uh, Badag, uh, the Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature, an apolotrosis refers to the buying back of a slave or a captive, making free by payment of a ransom. And so Jesus paid our sin debt. He paid our sin debt. You see, we were trapped in Satan's slave market of sin, uh, and we could not free ourselves. But Jesus, a free person, a free man, went to the cross and by his death, 
paid our sin debt. It has been taken out of the way, having been nailed to the cross. And so Jesus paid our sin debt. And Peter talks about how we have been redeemed, not with silver or gold from our futile way of life, but with his precious blood. Blood is of the Lamb of God, uh, John tells us. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the blood of Christ is the coin of the heavenly realm that pays our sin debt. In fact, it's the only currency that God accepts as payment for our sin debt. And so Christ paid it. And so we have been justified as a gift. Again, this is free from another to us by his grace through the redemption, apolatrosis, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, like our spiritual birth, justification is a one-and-done event, okay? And so when we trust in Christ, we are only born once. We are born again. The Bible does not say that we are born again, again, or born again, 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 or born again, 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 uh, as uh, those who would teach that you can forfeit your salvation. They say lose, but I prefer the term forfeit because it implies more of a volitional aspect, which is, I think, how they understand it and teach it. Uh, but they believe that if you forfeit your salvation, you can get it back. And so this idea of just being born again, 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 many times, well, the Bible doesn't teach that. You are born once physically, uh, that's human life, and then you are born again spiritually, and that's your regeneration. But that's a one-time deal. That's a one-time event. You're not uh, in a constant state of being born. That's a horrendous idea. Uh, so like our spiritual birth, justification is a one-and-done event. Perfect in itself, not to be confused with experiential sanctification, which occurs over time. Now remember, in our series of lessons so far, we've talked about salvation in three tenses. We've talked about how we have been saved from the penalty of sin. That's our, that, that is our justification. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are in the process of being saved from the power of sin. That's our sanctification. That's phase two of the Christian life. That's where we are right now for those of us who have trusted in Christ. Phase three... Uh, refers to our glorification. That is when we are saved from the presence of sin. So we have been saved from the power of sin, excuse me, from the penalty of sin. We are now being saved from the power of sin, and we will ultimately be saved from the very presence of sin when we leave this world. Uh, but that is our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. And we cannot conflate our sanctification with justification. That, uh, that's, that's incorrect. Now, I have a quote here uh, by Norman Geisler, and I like Geisler. He's a pretty solid teacher. He says, quote, Justification is an instantaneous past act of God by which one is saved from the guilt of sin. His record is cleared, and he is guiltless before, uh, before the judge, end quote. And that is taken from his Systematic Theology, Volume 3, page 235. And by the way, he references Romans 8, 1 there, which is a good verse, because it says, there is there, Therefore, uh, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. There is no danger of a believer ever facing the lake of fire. Now, if you are a disobedient to the word believer, if after salvation you go negative to God and you decide to spin off and do your own thing and to uh, become a friend of the world... Well, uh, you are going to be subject to divine discipline, to warning discipline, intensive discipline, and ultimately dying discipline. You uh, may, in fact, die the sin unto death. 
And there are some believers who have died to sin unto death. We talked about Leviticus 10, 1 and 2 with Nadab and Abihu, uh, who brought unauthorized fire into the tabernacle and God struck them dead. We talked about Uzzah reached out and touched the ark. God struck him dead. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, God struck them dead. The Corinthians, who were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, in 1 Corinthians 11.30, he says, For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, and, and sleep there being a euphemism for death, and those are stages of divine discipline. First John five sixteen and 17 talks about the sin unto death. That is the sin that the believer commits that is either so heinous or so perpetual that eventually God has to remove that person by physical death. And so the believer can and will suffer divine discipline in this life and uh, will die a horrible death uh, and will also forfeit rewards in the eternal state. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, 2 John 1, 8, both make that very, very clear. But we should be absolutely uh, straightforward on this that there is now no condemnation. For who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christo. That prepositional phrase speaks of our new identity, our positional identity as being in Christ. Very, very important truth. Now, I have a quote here by Charles Bing, another Bible teacher that I like. Uh, Charles Bing's got some very good material. And, uh, and this is taken from his book, Grace, Salvation, and discipleship, how to understand some difficult Bible passages, a good book. He says, quote, Justification is the act of God that declares a sinner righteous in God's sight. It is a legal term that speaks of one's right standing in God's court of justice, end quote. And that's correct, and it is a legal term. Sometimes people refer to this as forensic justification because it's a legal aspect here. It's a legal term. And it is understood in which God declares a sinner righteous in God's sight, declares. It's not that we are somehow made right in conduct, because uh, even though as we advance spiritually, even though we grow in our walk with the Lord, we become obedient to the word believers, and we will sin less over time. We will never attain a, a position of, of total sinlessness. The Bible doesn't teach that, not until we leave this world. Uh, but it is nonetheless, we can be declared righteous in God's sight. On what basis? On the basis of, of good works that we do? No. No. And, uh, but based upon the imputed righteousness that God gives to us at the moment of salvation. Now, uh, we, should, we should be pursuing a righteous life. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to learn His Word and to live His Word. And it's always in that order. Because we cannot live what we do not know. And learning God's Word necessarily precedes living God's will. And so we learn it and we live it in order that we might advance to spiritual maturity, that we might honor the Lord, that we might glorify Him through a good life, through a righteous life, and we might edify others, that we might live selflessly, sacrificially, uh, in love for the benefit of others. And so God wants us to grow up, and good works should follow salvation, even though they're never, never the condition of it. Uh, God does call us to a life of good works, but we have to uh, keep separate our sanctification, that is our advance to maturity, from our justification, which happens at the moment of faith in Christ in which God takes his righteousness and gives it to us as a gift, and, uh, and on that basis, we are declared righteous in his sight. 
Now, being justified in God's sight is by faith alone and not by human works. Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of the law, notice this, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No flesh will be justified in his sight. Human works will never, never bring that about. Romans 4.5 says, To the one who does not work, to the one who does not work. Now, this is completely contrary uh, to religion. Because religion is man by man's efforts trying to win the approval of God. That's, that's not how we get to heaven. Works uh, are, have no saving value in God's sight. And so, uh, Paul in the previous verse talks about, he uses a human analogy of working a job. He says, now to the one who works, we might take this to be a 40-hour work week, his wage, that is his paycheck, is not credited as favor, caudus. It's not considered a gift, but as what is due. You see, when I work a 40-hour work week and my employer, and I do work a 40-hour work week, I work a full-time job, my ministry is as a volunteer on the side, uh, but uh, when I do my job, when I'm working, uh, when, when my employer puts a, a paycheck, when they uh, take money from their account and put it into my account, they're not giving me a gift. They're not being kind to me. That's, that's not grace, okay? So to the one who works, his paycheck is not credited as a favor. They're not being kind to me. They're giving me what is due to me, what is owed to me. Now, God has created work in this world, and we ought to work, and we ought to work smart, and we ought to work hard. And we ought to do our work as unto the Lord. We ought to have integrity in our work. Uh, and uh, we ought to enjoy our work. I enjoy my work. I just don't like the impediments. That, that's what's frustrating. But I actually enjoy my work. Uh, but I cannot take that system, which, by the way, is a, is a valid system, but I cannot take the works system that God has created in this world that we live by and bring that as a paradigm for salvation because that doesn't work. Works in this world does not, does not apply to one's salvation. We, uh, salvation is predicated on a grace paradigm, not a works paradigm. Now, works are fine, but keep, it, keep that in its corner, okay? In order to be saved, we and that's what people do, don't they? They try to take their system of works, and they say, well, this is how it works in the world, so this is how it must work with God, so I'm going to take my good works, and I'm going to bring it to God, and God's going to give me salvation. He's going to let me into heaven. That's not how it works. Uh, to be saved, that is a grace paradigm. A grace paradigm. It's a totally different way of thinking. And, and this is why it's so hard for some people uh, to think this way, because they have to learn to think in terms of grace. But verse 5, Romans 4, 5, But to the one who does not work, underscore that, highlight that, put little asterisks around that, little arrows pointed to that. To the one who does not work, but believes, pastuo, who believes in him, notice, who justifies the ungodly. This is not the good person, this is not the righteous person, this is not the moral person, this is not the lovely person, but God justifies the ungodly. It says his faith is credited as righteousness. Now last week we focused on that verse and we looked at the Greek verb logizomai. Uh, we looked at that, we spent some time on that, so I'll recommend that you go back to that. But again, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Galatians 2.16 is another passage. It says, For nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Not justified by the works of the law. How are we justified? We are justified through faith in Christ Jesus. 
Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But we are justified by faith in Christ, okay? I have a quote here by J.I. Packer. I like Packer in a lot of ways. I don't care for a lot of his ecclesiology or eschatology, but he's pretty solid in, in a lot of ways. And here I'm citing him from his concise uh, uh, theology, a little book. But he says, quote, Justification is a judicial act of God pardoning sinners, wicked and ungodly persons, accepting them as just and so putting permanently right their position, their previously estranged relationship to himself. He says this justifying sentence is God's gift of righteousness his bestowal of a status of acceptance for Jesus' sake, end quote. And you'll see this continuity of language among these other Bible teachers, these other theologians whom I cite, uh, just simply to show that, uh, that others understand this as well. Now here I have a quote from Louis Burkhoff, who is an older theologian, and he says, Justification is a judicial act of God. This is God acting as judge in the courtroom of heaven. Justification is a judicial act of God in which he declares, and don't miss that, he declares on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that all the claims of the law are satisfied with respect to the sinner. He goes on, he says, It is unique in the application of the work of redemption in that it is a judicial act of God a declaration respecting the sinner, and not an act or process of renewal, such as uh, regeneration, conversion, and sanctification. He closes out, he says, While it has respect to the sinner, it does not change his inner life. It does not affect his condition, but his state. End quote. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? Well, let me go back to 2 Corinthians 5.21 for just a moment. See if I can give a little uh, understanding to this. When you think of Christ, when I think of Christ upon the cross in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that God made him, he made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Now follow me here. All of the sin of humanity was taken and placed upon Christ, and Christ was judged in our place, the just for the unjust, Peter tells us. But that did not make Christ a sinner in conduct. It did not make him a sinner in conduct. He always has been and forever will be righteous. But our sin was placed upon him and it was credited to him and he was judged in our place. But the flip side is that is that so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What that means is, is that when God takes his righteousness and gives it to us freely as a gift and we come into possession of God's very righteousness, it does not make us righteous in conduct. Righteous in conduct is part of our sanctification. That's phase two of the Christian life. And that's what he's talking about here. Uh, that's what um, Burkhoff is talking about here. He says, while it has respect to the sinner, it does not change his inner life. In other words, God simply gives his righteousness to us, but it doesn't make us righteous in conduct. He says it does not affect his condition, but his state. 
That is, our state before God goes from being in Adam to being in Christ. It goes from being in Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And we go uh, from having no righteousness or the righteousness of human works to having the very righteousness of God. We possess that very righteousness. And so our status before God has been changed. Merrill F. Unger, another great Bible teacher, a man that has had tremendous influence on me throughout the years. He says, quote, Justification is a divine act whereby an infinitely holy God judicially declares a believing sinner to be righteous and acceptable before him because Christ has borne the sinner's sin on the cross and has become to us righteousness. He goes on, he says, A justified believer emerges from God's great courtroom with a consciousness that another, his substitute, has borne his guilt and that he stands without accusation before God. End quote. And that is correct. That is correct. Romans 8.33 says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. We are never in danger of being separated from God because uh, who's going to bring a charge against us? God is the one who justifies. So again, a justified believer emerges from God's great courtroom with a consciousness that another, his substitute, that's Jesus, has borne his guilt and that he stands without accusation before God. All of my sin has been removed, past, present, and future. I have been forgiven all of my sins. Colossians 2 makes that very clear. And Acts 10.43, to those who believe in him, receives, Lombano, receives forgiveness of sins. So all of my sins have been uh, forgiven. They've been taken away from me. And I receive the gift of righteousness. Paul Enns states, and here I'm citing him from his Moody Handbook of Theology, another very good work. I do recommend that. He says, whereas forgiveness is the negative side of salvation. Now, here he's talking about the negative is that which has been removed. He says, whereas forgiveness is the negative side of salvation, justification is the positive side. Now, let me pause for a moment. I've talked about this before, that salvation is subtraction. It's, it's us receiving, at the moment of faith in Christ, forgiveness of sins. But it is also addition. It is us receiving the very righteousness of God. And when we receive that righteousness, at that moment, we are declared justified in God's sight. Again, this is a gift. It's a gift. So going back to ends here, he says, whereas forgiveness is the negative side of salvation, justification is the positive side. To justify, he says, is to declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. He says it is a forensic or legal act of God, whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous on the basis of the blood of Christ. The major emphasis of justification is positive and involves two main aspects. It involves the pardon and removal of all sins and the end of the separation from God. It also involves the bestowal of righteousness upon the believing person and a title to all the blessings promised to the just. Justification, he says, is a gift given through 
the grace of God. And it takes place at the moment the individual has faith in Christ. Now let me pause for a moment because he references Romans 5.1. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith. See, it's not by the works of the law. It's not by anything we do. Not by anything we do. We have been justified by faith in Christ. And he says, we have at that moment peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that peace is a relational peace. It's not the mental attitude of peace. Now, the mental attitude of peace comes over time as we think and operate from divine viewpoint. But this is relational peace. We have peace with God. Going back to ends here, continuing his quote, he says, The ground of justification is the death of Christ. Apart from any works, the means of justification is faith. Through justification, he says, God maintains his integrity and his standard, yet is able to enter into fellowship with sinners because they have the very righteousness of Christ imputed to them, end quote. Again, because they have the very righteousness of Christ imputed to them. Now, the process is faith in Christ. That's the process. At the moment of faith in Christ, uh, we receive the gift of righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And the declaration by God that the believer is now, at that moment, justified in God's sight. At that moment, we are justified. We are declared right by God. And God's estimation of us is the only estimation that truly matters. It is what God thinks about us. It's not what I think about myself. It's not what others may think about me, whether they love me and praise me, whether they think I'm a rascal. It doesn't matter. In the final analysis, the ultimate thing that really matters is what does God think about us? And, uh, and so I have been justified in God's sight because the very righteousness of God has been given to me as a gift. Quoting here from Colonel Theme from, Colonel Thiem, from his newly published uh, uh, Themes Bible Doctrine Dictionary, he says, quote, Anyone who expresses faith alone in Christ alone is instantly justified before the bench of God's justice. The mechanics of justification follow three logical steps, though they all occur simultaneously. First, the person believes in Christ. Second, God the Father credits or imputes his righteousness to that person. And third, God recognizes his righteousness in the believer and pronounces him justified, vindicated, righteous." End quote. And you see, that's really the issue. And learning to understand this is profoundly uh, significant because it affects our walk. Now, I mentioned in a lesson before that when it comes to our fellowship with God, when it comes to my relationship with God, remember there's two kinds of forgiveness. There's a judicial forgiveness where Christ has borne our sin and God uh, forgives me of all of my sin because of what Christ did for me. And that is a judicial forgiveness where I stand before God as judge. And there is also a familial forgiveness, a familial forgiveness, a parental forgiveness. This is the ongoing forgiveness. This is 1 John 1, 9. This doesn't relate to our salvation. It relates to our sanctification. It relates to our ongoing cleansing that we need to stay in fellowship with the Lord. But I know three things are true when I sin as a Christian. Three things are true. One, when I sin at that moment, I am operating in status quo carnality. I am operating according to Satan's world system, cosmos diabolicus. Uh, and so I know that at that moment, I am out of fellowship with God. 
Two, I know that if I continue in that state, I know that I am subject to divine discipline because he whom the Lord loves, he disciplines like a father his own son. And furthermore, I am subject to forfeiting rewards in the eternal state. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, 2 John 1, 8, make that very clear. And if I continue in that unbelief, in that stubbornness, in that state of recalcitrance, that hard-heartedness towards God and his word, then I can eventually become subject to the sin unto death. But one thing I know with absolute certainty is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I will never face the lake of fire. I may face a serious spanking, and I may lose rewards in the eternal state, but my place in heaven is never threatened. Uh, because I did not do anything to save myself. That is the work of Christ, and I don't do anything to unsave myself. And so uh, there are things that I can suffer in this life, but I have to have a place of security. I have to have a place based on the Word of God, and I do have a place based on the Word of God to know that my eternal destiny is never in question. Remember John 10, 28, where Jesus said, And I give eternal life to them, and they will never... Perish. Now, the word never translates a double negative in the Greek. Ou, may. You see, and there's two ways to say no in the Greek. Ou, O-U, and may, M-E. Uh, but when you put them together, when you have ou, may, a double negative in the Greek, it becomes emphatic. And you can't say anything any stronger than by using a double negative. And so I, the, the believer who comes into possession of eternal life will never never perish. And by the way, if you could lose it, it wouldn't be eternal life. It would be temporal life. But it's eternal life. And so it cannot be lost. It cannot be lost. And so we have to understand these things. And so understanding what God thinks about us from the divine side, prior to faith in Christ, we are sinners who stand guilty before a righteous and a holy God who can only do one thing with sin, and that is to condemn it. And he, he can either condemn it in the offender or he can condemn it in a substitute. And he, and he judged it in a substitute. And, uh, and so the issue for us then becomes, what do we do with Christ? You see, that's the most important decision we can make in life. What do we do with Christ? Now, God gives grace to the unbeliever. In fact, as long as they have life and breath, they are recipients of God's grace. Uh, his common grace he extends to all humanity, to the good and the evil, to the righteous and the unrighteous. And though grace is infinite in scope, it is not eternal in its duration. It doesn't go forever. And at death, all of life's decisions are fixed for eternity. At death, all of life's decisions are fixed for eternity. And what we do with Christ in time determines our eternal destiny. Because at that moment, uh, there's no more grace. Grace comes to an end. And there's no grace in heaven, by the way. Grace is only necessary for us while we are here on earth. Uh, because there's no sin in heaven. But at death, all of life's decisions are fixed. And what a person does with Christ in time determines their eternal destiny. And so those who reject Christ, well, by their own choice, they elect uh, eternal separation from God. But those who believe in Christ, those who trust in Christ and Christ alone, well, we are given eternal life. And, uh, and so we will spend eternity with God forever in heaven. And that's never questioned. That, that should never be questioned in the mind of the believer. But at that moment, we are justified in the sight of God. 
Uh, now, I know I'm hitting you with a lot of information. Uh, a lot of this is, is very uh, dense, and, uh, and so you'll have to unpack this over time. Uh, you can study the notes and go back and listen to the lesson. But let me go on here for the sake of time. The imputation of God's righteousness to believers means that we are declared righteous, but not made righteous in conduct. To be righteous in conduct is the lifelong process of sanctification, whereby the believer advances to spiritual maturity and lives in conformity with the character and the will of God as revealed in His Word. This is the walk of faith. Now, we're going to spend lessons here in a few months when we get to a section, because we're talking about soteriology. So we're looking here at phase one uh, primarily. But I've been hinting at and directing at phase two, and we're going to spend several weeks... We're going to spend some time talking about phase two. What is necessary to advance to spiritual maturity? How do we live out the Christian life? So we're going to talk about that in future lessons, but, but I'm giving you some, some uh, hintings at it here. So again, uh, sanctification is where the believer advances to spiritual maturity and lives in conformity with the character and will of God as revealed in his word. This is the walk of faith. But though we are righteous in God's sight because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, at the same time we continue to possess a sin nature that continually causes internal temptation and conflict. You see, the believer, from the moment of salvation onward, uh, as he or she advances spiritually in their walk with the Lord, will deal with an internal civil war that is going on within them. Because within their body, the flesh, sarks, uh, Paul says, I find then, Romans 7.21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. And so Paul in Romans 7 talks about his struggle back and forth between uh, his sin nature, hamartia, the noun, the sin thing, uh, and his inner man that wants to serve the Lord. So believers deal with this. And by the way, this explains why certain passages demonstrate this. Uh, in Matthew, excuse me, Romans 13, 14, Paul, talking to believers, says to them, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, notice, and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now, the word flesh there translates the Greek noun sarks, which in this context has to do with that fallen proclivity within all of us. Uh, that desires to operate independently of the character and the Word of God and all systems of legitimate authority. And so uh, we are to make no provision for the flesh. Well, this command, if there is no sin nature, if there is no flesh within the believer with regard to its lust, then this command would be superfluous. It would be absolutely unnecessary. But he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Well, what does he mean, make no provision for the flesh? Well, uh, to paraphrase, it means, it means don't expose yourself to the things that excite the flesh. That is the sin nature. Because if your proclivity is towards alcoholism, don't go to bars. Don't hang out with people who drink. If your proclivity is towards uh, drugs, then don't expose yourself to that. Whatever the sinful proclivity happens to be, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Uh, and so we continue on with the sin nature. And uh, Galatians 5.16, Paul says, But I say, again talking to believers, walk by the Spirit. Uh, and walk there uh, translates the Greek verb peripateo, and it's a metaphor for how you live your life. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. 
And so there again, he's using the Greek noun sarx there, and he's talking about the sin nature. Verse 17, for the flesh that is within the believer, because he's talking to believers, sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So we have this internal conflict that goes on. Plus, we continue to produce sin throughout our lives. Now, hopefully we are sinning less and less, both in the kind of sin and the quantity. I like to keep my sins small and to keep them few uh, because there are big sins. Remember, even under the Mosaic Law, there were 613 commands, and 15 of those, if you violated them, warranted the death penalty. And that right there tells you that not all sins are the same. So, uh, you know, keep your sins small, keep them few, and you'll save yourself a lot of heartache. But Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and who never sins. So that's, that's true. Now, though the power of the sin nature is broken, the presence of the sin nature is never removed from us until God takes us from this world and gives us a new body like the body of Jesus. And uh, when we get that new body, it will be minus sin. And it will be a perfect body. Now, Martin Luther, who was a very interesting fellow, uh, and he got some things right and he got some things wrong, uh, Martin Luther understood this duality, this uh, possession of righteousness, but this indwelling uh, sin, f- sinful flesh that we have, uh, and this, uh, this production of sin. He understood this, and he coined the Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase or not, but it's a Latin phrase, and it's translated as simultaneously righteous and a sinner. Simultaneously righteous and a sinner. You see, though Christians are declared righteous in God's sight, uh, sin will still continue in the life of the believer, and this to varying degrees, depending upon the status of the believer's spiritual walk with the Lord. I have a quote here by Dr. Uh, Timothy George, who wrote a book on the Reformers, a very interesting and well-written book. He says, quote, The believer is not only both righteous and sinful at the same time, but is also always completely both righteous and sinful at the same time. What does this mean, he says? He says, With respect to our fallen human condition, we are and always will be in this life sinners. However, For believers, life in this world is no longer a period of doubtful candidacy for God's acceptance. In a sense, notice what he says here, we have already been before God's judgment seat and have been acquitted on the account of Christ. Hence, we are also always righteous, end quote. And that was from his book, Theology of the Reformers, page 72. Now, I agree with the phrase simul justus et peccator, that the Christian is simultaneously righteous and a sinner. That is true uh, not only theologically from the teach from the Word of God, but it is also true as far as uh, Christian experience is, is, uh, goes. But I think a better phrase is simper justus et peccator, simper justus et peccator, that we are always righteous and a sinner. You see, both are true. As a Christian, I am righteous because I have received God's gift of righteousness. I possess that. Uh, And this is the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith in Christ. 
God gave me his righteousness at the moment I trusted Christ as my Savior. And like all of God's gifts, it cannot be given back. For, according to Romans 11.29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They're irrevocable. And as one who possesses God's righteousness, I am forever justified in his sight. You see, the matter is settled in heaven. God has made it so. And after being saved, the issue for every Christian is to advance to spiritual maturity, which glorifies God and edifies others. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to press on to maturity, to grow up. Uh, he wants us to uh, reach a place of spiritual maturity. That's what he wants for us as Christians. Now, it's never the will of God that we sin. It's never the will of God that we sin. But when we sin, and we do, it is always his will that we handle it in a biblical manner. And that means, first and foremost, confession of that sin, 1 John 1, 9. It also means that we accept full responsibility for that sin and whatever effect or impact it may have in the lives of others, that we will own it, that we will handle it humbly, honestly, that we will seek forgiveness of others if we need to, if there's some consequence that we may pay. Listen, I can go out and I can commit a crime that may land me in prison. And, uh, and that sin, I can confess it and God forgives me, but there's still consequences to be born out of that. And, uh, and so, um, so there's, it, it means that when we handle our sin, that we handle it in a biblical way. And I'll talk about that in future lessons as well. All right, so we finished uh, two minutes early. How about that? Surprise, surprise. Uh, usually I don't. Usually I run a few minutes over, but we, we made good time on this one. So that will close out this lesson on justification. Uh, and hopefully you understand this a little bit better. It, it fell nicely on the doctrine of imputed righteousness. And so justification uh, was a good follow-up doctrine to that. Now I've hit you with a lot, but hopefully uh, enough of this has been communicated that you understand this doctrine uh, well. Do we have any questions over tonight's lesson? We have any questions or comments? Joe? Yeah, um, great, great lesson. Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, I was hoping you can comment on um, on uh, that famous passage in James chapter two, especially verse uh, twenty-four. I'm sure you probably know what it is, where it says <laughs> that um, you know you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And I understand James is talking to the believer, mm -hmm. and um, and and we've been studying this book in our class at you know, at Schaefer, and and uh, I was hoping that you can just comment on that. Right, so when he talks about being justified, uh, one has to ask, uh, who is the audience? Uh, because he says, someone may well say, someone, who's the someone there? Well, it's a human, it's a person. We're not talking about God. Uh, someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So what James is talking about is he's talking about justification in the eyes of other people, not in the eyes of God. Paul is talking about justification before God. God you know, God knows who we are, and he sees with, uh, with great clarity, and he is omniscient and knows all things. But other people, we can say that we have faith, but for, for them, 
uh, our faith is justified in their sight when they see it lived out, when they see the life of works. So works there has to do with being justified in the sight of others, not God. And so in the context, when he says someone may well say, his imaginary interlocutor uh, that he sets forth there in, uh, in verse 18, he's talking about being justified in the sight of people, not in the sight of God. Does that help answer that? Yes, thank you very much. Okay, love the question, by the way. <clears throat> I wrestled with that some years ago myself, so I get it. Any other questions or comments by anybody? not appear to be anybody right now. Okay. Uh, well, this has been and is being recorded uh, both digitally. I've got a, a audio recorder next to me here. And so this will be posted on the podcast channel here shortly. I'll send out a link for that. And it is also being recorded live on Facebook. Uh, so if you want to go back and watch the live stream there, it will also be there available uh, after today's lesson. So and there was a record number on Facebook uh, tonight too. Oh, so good. Uh, okay. Good. Very nice. Well, we seem to be having an expanding audience here, so that's good. Well, I thank you all. I thank you all for joining me this evening, and uh, we will go ahead and wrap it up. Next week, we will talk about love. <laughs> we will talk about love and such a wonderful biblical teaching, and we will look at that word love. It is there's so much there. And of course, certainly a very, very relevant word to our study in soteriology. So hopefully you will join back next week as we talk about love as it relates to our salvation. So uh, let's go ahead and close it out with a word of prayer, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can call you Father, having trusted in your Son as our Savior. And we are thankful that we can stand before your throne, as Hebrews 4.16 tells us, that it is a throne of grace. It is not a throne of judgment. We stood before that throne once before, but when we believed in Christ, we have been brought into your family. We have received your gift of righteousness and eternal life, and we are part of your family. We are children, your children, and we stand before you as one who stands before a throne of grace. And we are so thankful for that. And Father, we just pray this evening as we close out this lesson uh, that the things that we've studied uh, will become deeply seated in our understanding and that we will be able to apply it to our lives. Father, we thank you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.